Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm John Noggle, Associate Professor of Warfighting Studies at the U.S. Army War College and your host today. When last heard on War Room, I was discussing lessons I learned from skimming Thucydides, but this time I'm on the other side of the microphone asking the questions. Our guest today is a soldier and Afghan war veteran whose book, Number One Realist, Bernard Fall and Vietnamese Revolutionary Warfare, examines the thinking of one of the most insightful writers about the Vietnam War. Bernard Fall fled the Anschluss in Austria as a young man, fought in the French resistance in World War II after his parents were killed by the Nazis, and worked at the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal to prosecute Krupp for its use of slave labor during the war. Fall earned a Fulbright scholarship to study in the United States, earning his doctorate at Syracuse, and began studying the Vietnamese War against the French. He became one of its best analysts, writing, among other books, Street Without Joy, about Highway 1. He was killed on that street in 1967 by a Viet Cong landmine. Like Fall, our author fought in revolutionary wars and earned his doctorate thinking about the Vietnamese wars, but several generations after the subject of his work did. Nathaniel Moyer's service in Afghanistan led him to graduate study about the nature of revolutionary war at SUNY Albany after his deployment. Nate has since done research at the Naval Postgraduate School and is a former Ernest May Fellow and currently an associate in the Applied History Project at the Kennedy School of Harvard University, from which he joins us now. Nate, welcome to War Room. John, it's great to be with you. Nate, I'm interested in your intellectual journey from soldier to scholar. Can you talk about your service in Afghanistan and the lessons you drew from it? Yeah, well, thank you, John. You know, I wanted to... Um give you kind of a quick overview of my military service and how I came to learn about Bernard Fall. I joined the Army in 2006 with a real interest in counterinsurgency and irregular warfare. You know, and the great thing about discussing Bernard Fall with you today is that, you know, reading uh, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife was really a key book, you know, along with David Cullen's Accidental Gorilla, and helping me to think about how those lessons from Vietnam had bearing on the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, and to back up even further, when I was in high school and was trying to figure out how the United States had lost in Vietnam, especially when the United States had been so powerful, um, my dad gave me a copy of a posthumous collection of essays by Bernard Fall called Last Reflections on a War. Um, my dad had served for 21 years in the U.S. Navy as a surface warfare officer. And um, as a Vietnam veteran, he had learned about Bernard Fall in 1961 when he joined, wow. right around the time that Street Without Joy was published. And so he passed on this knowledge of Fall's work to me long before I earned my commission through OCS in 2007. Um, another key point for me was deploying to Afghanistan as a, a PSYOP detachment OIC in RC East in 2010 and 11, um, where I led teams in Kunar, Logman, and Nangarhar provinces. Um, my time there in Afghanistan showed me some similar issues that Fall had written about 
regarding the Viet Minh and the National Liberation Front, for example, how sanctuaries for the Taliban in Pakistan had created similar problems for the U.S. and Afghan forces that really, in a lot of ways, echoed how NLF sanctuaries in Cambodia and Laos had presented similar problems for the U.S. and Republic of Vietnam forces. You know, there's many other examples related to Fall's analysis of subversion that put me on a path to wanting to understand how the political realities at work um, that the Taliban were seeking to achieve through subversion, such as targeting government officials um, at the district and provincial levels. You know, I just want to add um, that when I returned from Afghanistan, I had the, the really good fortune of being able to study uh, Taliban propaganda at the um, Culture and Conflict Studies program at the Naval Postgraduate School. So having that time to study what I had experienced in Afghanistan really primed me for wanting to complete my PhD. And so I came into my doctoral program knowing that I was going to write my dissertation about Bernard Fall. Well, it would have been hard to have picked a more interesting subject. One of the really interesting things about Fall to me is that his thinking led that of the United States about Vietnam. So first he thought the French could win, then he thought they were doomed, then he thought the U.S. could win, then he thought the U.S. was also destined to fail. And Fall was always a couple of years ahead of informed public opinion in the U.S., do you think that assessment is correct? And and if so, why was Bernard Fall so far and so consistently ahead of his time? Yeah, that's I do agree with that assessment. And um, there's a number of reasons why I think um, he was really kind of ahead of his time. I mean, one is that he came into his study of Vietnam, understanding how a country could be militarily strong, but also politically weak at the same time. And some of this is because of his experience in as a as a Frenchman um, who had emigrated from Austria during World War II, and so he described this kind of relationship between military strength and political weakness in a phrase um, that he said that the United States had achieved in Vietnam a position, an unassailable position of total weakness. And so I think his scholarship, yeah, is a great example of applied history in that he was trying to use um, the past to better under better inform understanding of contemporary or anticipated war. Um, I think that he had a lot of um, value because he really thought like an insurgent. He had fought in the French resistance, the FFI, but he was also a platoon leader in the 4th Moroccan Mountain Division. And he really understood the value of local intelligence, for example. You know, and in the, the Maquis, he also had an understanding of problems posed by like collaborators and how that was such a critical component of partisan warfare. Um, so partisan warfare was violent, but it really, you know, trying to eliminate collaborators really depended on local intelligence, especially when, for example, killing the wrong person would could it turn an entire village against an, a group of the Maquis. So having a really fine-grained appreciation for intelligence not only just increased the effectiveness of the Maquis, but it really affected, I think, the way that he thought about warfare as well. Yeah, that you know, was, one, was of, also an, one of the re lessons yeah. um, we tried to incorporate when we wrote the counterinsurgency field manual in 2006, that an operation that takes an insurgent off the battlefield but, but creates three more is a net loss for the counterinsurgents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he was an intellectual. There was, um, you know, books that he studied as a, a young man, um, this one called Der Weltkrieg in Document and, and Bildern, which was all about World War I. And so he, he came to his study as a, a military historian in a lot of ways, but then, you know, one that had been fighting in the French resistance. So he was able to integrate um, academic interests with what his reality was, which was a Jew trying to survive Nazi aggression during World War II. 
Yeah, and, and he ended up spending a whole bunch of time in Vietnam, took four extended, I mean, 10-month-long, year-long trips to Vietnam. So he wasn't just a, a, wasn't just a book reader, um, but, but uh, really, in, in some ways, a soldier's journalist. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think he had a big influence on that first wave of journalists that were coming to Vietnam, people like David Halberstam, um, Neil Sheehan. Um, Walter Cronkite used to go to his home in, um, in Washington, D.C. when the Vietnam War was escalating to get information from Bernard Fall. I've got a video of uh, Walter Cronkite interviewing Bernard Fall on what his thoughts were of Ho Chi Minh and the cult of Ho Chi Minh and things of that nature. So he was really kind of part of that first wave because he spent about a year in 1953 on his first trip to Vietnam. And this ended up becoming basically the basis for his dissertation he completed at Syracuse University in 1955. It was a book called The Viet Minh Regime, which really examined, it was the first English historical account of how the Indochinese Communist Party formed in 1930, but also how the establishment of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam came about in 1945, up through basically the Chinese Revolution and um, Chinese Communist victory in 1949 and the early stages of the French Indochina War. Yeah, a year in Vietnam and, and during the French War, that's, that's field work right there. Yes. He wasn't, he wasn't just, uh, just uh, in archives. So uh, I appreciated your comments about um, the influence of his thinking on, on journalists. And, and of course, I read Halberstam and, and Sheehan and watched Cronkite while I was working on, on my own dissertation. But how important do you think Fall's thinking was on policymakers in the U.S.? Did he have influence there as well? You know, he did have influence on U.S. policy um, as it was implemented in Vietnam, but I think it really was limited. You know, and a great deal of this was because of, I think I could call it institutional resistance to outside critiques, you know, especially such as those that Fall provided, but also certainly I think due to some of the hubris in, for example, the Johnson administration, um, which generally believed that the U.S. would do far better than the French did in Vietnam. You know, I would like to add that I think the JFK administration was more circumspect about the chances for victory in Vietnam. But um, another factor that I think limited Fall's influence was that he died on February 21st, 1967, you know, as the war was really becoming to escalate, you know, so the limitations associated with that are really obvious. Yeah, but he did have two um, influences more indirectly that I'd like to point out, one um, in the military realm and one in the political realm. And in the military realm, there was a an officer, Major General William Yarbrough, who was the commandant of um, the Special Warfare Center at Fort Wild, Bragg, which Wild you know. Bill, as I recall, yep. Wild Bill, yes. Um, and he was really a key figure in the development of special forces at an early time. And he was really interested in Bernard Fall's scholarship on subversion and revolutionary warfare. And he invited Fall to come to Fort Bragg on many occasions. In fact, William Yarborough was one of the speakers to provide um, a, a speech, um, a eulogy at Fall's funeral in March 1967. And so Fall kept inviting, um, Yarborough kept inviting Fall even though um, he had gotten some pressure to not invite Fall because of Fall's outspoken critiques of U.S. policy. The other political influence that I would like to highlight is Fall's relationship with Senator J. William Fulbright, who, as you know, was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, Fulbright often invited Fall to speak with him after every trip that Fall had to Vietnam. And 
this really, I think, had a lot of impact on how Fulbright changed his relationship to not only earlier, for example, he had supported Johnson's um, Tonkin Gulf Resolution, but later Fulbright was one of the first people to really move to a position to where he broke with the Johnson administration to the point to where he was even leading televised hearings about the Vietnam War in 1966. And Fulbright actually discussed Bernard Fall in his book, The Arrogance of Power, which was published in 1965. So those are a couple examples of more indirect influence that Fall had. Mm-hmm. And do you know if the relationship with Fulbright started because Fall was a Fulbright scholar? Was it was was this the the result of of that program? You know, I think that was one of the really kind of interesting ironies to discover with doing research that Fall had first come to the United States, as you mentioned, as a Fulbright scholar in um, 1952 to do a master's degree at Syracuse University, and then he went to Vietnam in 1953 to gather his field research, you know, and he was one of the first groups or first waves of Fulbright scholars to come to the U.S. So I think that that was something they probably discussed that probably made Fulbright very happy to know that he was learning from somebody that had engaged in a program that was based on using surplus war funds from World War II. And so um, I I think that was a really key point that... um, made this whole kind of debate interesting for for Fulbright. He initially learned about Fall, though, through reading Street Without Joy. So mm-hmm. that was a key point. Interesting. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about Street Without Joy in, in just a minute. Uh, but, but first, um, I, I, I want to talk about the formula Fall developed to describe revolutionary warfare. Can you tell me what it was and, and why you think it's important? Yes. Um, I'm going to give your readers a bottom line up front, which is something I think they all appreciate. And that false formula was RW equals G plus P. And I'll break that down. By this, he meant that RW is revolutionary warfare, and it equaled guerrilla warfare plus political action. So guerrilla warfare and political action equaled revolutionary warfare when they were integrated. You know, and this was really the most concise description narratively that he gave his readers. And this is a quote that I'm going to read you, right? He wrote, when a country is being subverted, is not being outfought, is being out-administered, end quote. You know, and so understanding how this is happening, though, is really the key to this kind of subversion. And I'd like to point out that David Kilcullen, in a lecture from 2007 that was called Counterinsurgency Iraq, in Iraq, Theory and Practice, Kilcullen pointed out that the hardest task in counterinsurgency is figuring out what is actually going on. And um, I think we both agree that that's really obvious and essential to establish before you set up some M240 Bravos, right? So um, the basis for Fall's value, I think, was really to understanding how communist organization, administration, warfare functioned. Um, Just a couple of quick points about some of the influences that he had. As I mentioned, he built on personal knowledge, you know, but he also studied the work of other French officers that had fought in Indochina and that later then moved to fighting the FLN in Algeria, um, beginning in September 1954. And one of the key texts on which he developed his formula was um, a book by a French officer named Gabriel Bonnet, who had published a book called Insurrections and Revolutionary Wars in 1958. Um, you know, I could go on about numerous quotes that he had, but, you know, ultimately he really I was able to mention or identify how the communists saw the central objective of revolutionary warfare as being the human beings that made up their nation even though they could just treat them horribly through poor land reform policies, targeting um, people that were innocent as landowners, 
Um, but on our side, he recognized that we were more interested, the West anyway, was in securing like communication lines, controlling crops and industrial installations and things of that nature. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually uh, heading down to Washington this afternoon uh, to attend a conference tomorrow on irregular war, professional military education. Um, and, and one of the questions they sent a, a survey uh, in advance to get us thinking. And one of the questions was, what is irregular warfare? And my definition of it hinges on wars where the support of the population is decisive. And as, as you suggest, as Fall said, the critical uh, step in getting the support of the population is, is once, once you've provided their basic physical security, is providing them with, with some degree of governance. And, and the challenge there is that armies don't know how to build governance and that the organizations that do know how to build governance often can't operate in a revolutionary war, guerrilla war kind of situation. So we really need soldiers uh, or former soldiers like Fall who, who understand, really understand what Clausewitz meant by the admixture of, of politics with, with the addition of other means as, as the definition of war. Yeah, that, that Clausewitzian trinity of government, the people, and the military is absolutely critical you know, in fall, I think really distinguished himself by, for example, doing a lot of analysis on rice production and how things like that occurred. He um, discussed, for example, the idea that land reform by the DRV in 1953 was really used to create the mass mobilization that scholars like Christopher Gosha or Alec Holcomb and others have dug into. Um, you know, they later moved into a whole collectivized um, system in 1956, so it could be counterproductive in some ways. But Fall understood that for the Vietnamese farmer, land was absolutely critical. And so, of course, rice production was the key to that. And, and I don't think the United States ever understood that in Vietnam uh, on, a, on a national scale. No, maybe with the cords program um, later on, but by that time, it was really too late. I think Fall saw the war as being really lost you know, in in the 50s, for example, when No Den Ziem dismantled the local villagers governance system and he instituted basically the Republic of Vietnam government officials were then going to take over those positions. And so this really drove the population um, against him. You know, plus he was a Catholic in a Buddhist majority country. So there was a number of factors as well as the authoritarian decrees like the denunciators campaigns that he had. Um, he really created the far more enemies um, you know, then, then he eliminated, you know, and we saw that in established coups against him well before the successful one in 1963 yeah, that the United States eventually supported. Yeah, which is not to say that that coup ended up being a good idea. No. Um, right, whether, uh, obviously not morally justified, but, but not politically, militarily justified either. It didn't, uh, ended up yes. not helping, uh, I would argue. Uh, so in, in addition to Street Without Joy, which is the Bernard Fall book, I Know Best. He wrote several others. Can you can you sort of take us through the the intellectual evolution he displayed by um, by publishing the books that he did? Uh, yes, the the majority of his early work focused on the French's experience in Indochina between 1946 and 1954. Um, Street Without Joy, of course, is the key 
document of that. Um, towards the end of his career, he completed and published um, Hell in a Very Small Place about the siege at Dien Bien Phu. And this was really kind of a life's work. It was a, a major um, academic accomplishment. That wasn't published until 1966. But the French Indochina War, the first Indochina War, as people in Vietnamese studies call it, um, really animated his scholarly activity throughout. But in 1963, he published another major important work, which was The Two Vietnams, A Political and Military Analysis. And this is where he began to shift his experience and knowledge from the first Indochina War to what the United States was learning about very quickly, um, especially with the Iodrine Valley battle in November 1965. This was a real wake-up call for U.S. forces. Um, but in the second revised edition of that book, which was originally published in 1963, he began to study and incorporate chapters about the National Liberation Front, the Viet Cong. And um, in fact, he was in Vietnam on his last trip in December 1966 on a Guggenheim Fellowship to do a detailed analysis of the National Liberation Front. So I would say from 1963 to his death, he was really looking at how to apply those lessons more and more from the first Indochina War to what was happening in Laos, for example, but also in Cambodia and in especially in South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, without the degree of success we would have liked to have seen. Um, and, and so a, a, a prophet uh, somewhat without honor and obviously lost too soon. We've been thinking uh, here at the War College about Afghanistan and the end of the war in Afghanistan a, a, a lot. And I'm, I'm wondering for you as a, an Afghan war veteran, still a serving soldier, does false thinking still matter for the U.S. as it sort of steps away from or tries to step away from these revolutionary wars? Absolutely. Yes, it does matter. Um, in my work at the Kennedy School, I'm surrounded by a lot of political scientists that really focus on contemporary problems. Um, in my world, applied history is really key. And this is where we're you know, trying to identify lessons from the past and determine how those lessons are applicable to contemporary problems. Um, Ernest May was a historian at Harvard that was really a key architect of this approach. And I think Fall really epitomized what an applied historian could be. Um, he had a PhD in international relations, but he was always looking at how we could learn from other people's mistakes. You know, and I think that's really something that I've heard you discuss before that, you know, being able to learn from others without making the mistake yourself is really kind of the ideal of wisdom. And this is where Thucydides, you know, all things that you've discussed in other podcasts, is just ultimately critical. And so incorporating history for our soldiers, airmen, Marines, um, across the board at a very early age, but especially, you know, for those that are making decisions, is really just absolutely critical. You know, and fall, I think, really um, is a great place to turn for lessons about Afghanistan. And far few two people understand, I think, or know about his work. I think a lot of Vietnam veterans knows about Street Without Joy. Um, the Marine Corps, I think, has a historical background in past conflicts and really prizes their history. Um, but Fall has a lot of value about understanding the political importance of how war today is being fought. Um, people like Craig Whiteside, who's um, a scholar I really admire at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, has talked about how revolutionary warfare in the context of ISIS in um, in Afghanistan, you know, and so people like that, I think, bring a lot of value to discussions about the type of 
wars that we're fighting, you know, especially the types of irregular warfares, you know, that are that are bound to happen. And we have to be prepared for those because um, it's it's just a matter of when the next time will be at some point, in my view. I'm, I'm saddened to say that I'm pretty sure you're right. Uh, as you were talking about Ernest May, I, I was reminded of, I never had the privilege of, of learning from him, but uh, the Neustadt and May book, Thinking in Time, is absolutely yes. formative in my own thinking about how to apply history to help solve public policy problems, not just military problems, not just, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I want to add to um, Jim Mattis, Secretary, former Secretary and General uh, Jim Mattis, and also H.R. McMaster, who, of course, you know, you know, um, you know, these are two really important leaders, you know, that ha- are in positions of, you know, experience and power that can, you know, really kind of help push that agenda of using history in a beneficial way. But of course, it's about trying to analyze it in a way that makes sense to, you know, a, a platoon leader. You know, how can he come in to, say, a village and be more equipped intellectually to um, confront or deal with the types of problems he's going to engage? You know, there's a lot that history can provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could he could start by reading Bernard Fall's book or yeah. or your book, although it will it will take him it will it will cut into his, <laughs> his Friday yeah. night time on on Sixth Street, uh, thinking about For the sure. lieutenant days at uh, at Fort Hood. Uh, Nate, what what's next on your research agenda? What are you working on now? Um, well, you know, I just I just had a chapter that came out about um, how journalists covered the Nuremberg trials, um, just like about a week or so ago. And then I also have an article coming out in the Journal of American East Asian Relations on Francois Souli, who is a colleague and friend of Bernard Falls. But um, longer term, my future research focuses on two main projects. One is a unit history of my assigned unit in the Army, which is the Asian Studies Detachment, um, which is under 500th MI Brigade. It's based in Camp Zama, Japan. But um, the title of that is the Asian Studies Detachment, a history of open source intelligence in the Indo-Pacific. And kind of the longer lifetime goal that I have is to complete a study, um, which I've titled Corresponding Conflicts, a Comparative History of the Korean War and the First Indochina War. Um, but like anybody, trying to make time to get this done is the biggest challenge of all. That's uh, uh, that's super interesting. Yeah, if if you get to do that work on on Korea, I'm going to commend two books to you. Uh, uh, Carter Malkasian's uh, first book. Um, Carter, uh, uh, an old friend, and um, uh, Carter and I share the extraordinary privilege of of having been taught by a, a soldier and and scholar named Bob O'Neill, who just passed away uh, here this past right. week. But Bob wrote the official two-volume history of Australia in the Korean War. And uh, I'm pleased to have the chance to pay tribute to him and the influence he had on Carter, who in my eyes is perhaps the best American chronicler of our current most recent war in Afghanistan and uh, on me as well, and on just generations of, of strategic thinkers all over the globe. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, and, and, uh, um, and, uh, Carter certainly has, has uh, taken up his mantle, and so, sir, have you. So, Nate, thanks for writing such a, an impressive, important, long overdue book thanks. on thanks, one of our John. most important thinkers about the kind of war that the U.S. really doesn't want to fight, but somehow ends up fighting over and over and over again. As I just said, reading Number One Realist may help American soldiers and scholars better understand the capabilities we need to develop 
in order to succeed for a change in these kind of wars the next time we end up fighting one. So I, I feel um, very strongly that you've done a real service to American strategy and American national security by giving us this absolutely terrific book. So thanks. Thanks, Nate, very much. Yeah, John, thank you for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments and suggestions on this and for future episodes. And please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And once you have, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one that I think, at least, have real implications for the security of our nation and our world. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm John Noggle. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.